Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Isaac, and I'm one of the pastors here at Willingdon. And uh, today I have the privilege of sharing uh, God's word with you. Um, we're going to be looking at Genesis, or sorry, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. Uh, but before we do, uh, I'm going to be uh, leading us in a word of prayer. Father, we just ask, Lord, for your presence to be here to open up our hearts and minds to hear your word. We thank you that you have given us your word, that you reveal, to, you reveal yourself to us through your word. And Father, that you transform us. Uh, so Father, we just ask that that would take place, uh, that your will, be, your will would be done in our lives as a result of encountering you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 16, and uh, we're going to be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 to 36, so it is a little bit lengthy, but if you are able, uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, Exodus chapter 16, verse 1 to 36, uh, in your Bibles, in the pew Bibles, uh, in front of you, it would be page 58. And they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to Aaron, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each, of you, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of the Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. 
Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it to the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept to the morning. So they laid it aside to the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Please be seated. Have you ever had a time when you, when you went through a very difficult situation, but after some time had passed, you forgot how difficult it, it really was? Um, I'm going to ask you guys uh, a few questions and uh, I'd, ask, I'd like for you guys to raise your hands so we can kind of see the answers here when I ask you. First of all, how many of you have climbed the grouse grind before? Okay, so if you climb the grouse grind, put up your hand. I see hands, I see movement, okay. Um, how many of you really enjoyed climbing the grouse grind? Put up your hand. I see less hands, Okay. And for those of you who had your hand up for your, that second question there, how many of you are lying? <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I, I want to share with you some, uh, some experiences that I've had going on the grass grind. I've gone up four times, which I know is not a whole lot, uh, living in Vancouver for, for virtually all of my life. Um, but I want to share some experiences. Um, it was very grueling the very first time that I went up. I didn't really know what to expect. I knew it was challenging, but I went up and I found it very difficult. But at the end of the climb, someone asked me if I was satisfied of finishing the climb and if I enjoyed it. And I thought about it and I wasn't sure if I enjoyed it, but I said, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was good. It was fun. Uh, when I went up the second time, I realized something. I really hated doing the grind. And I said to myself that I would never do it again. 
ever. I would liken it to my experience in getting a root canal done. There was relief after it was completed, but I wouldn't call that enjoyment. Years later, after a group of friends planned a a grouse grind event, I went along thinking, yeah, I think it, it should be fun. It should be fun. Partway up into the grind, it all came back to me that I hated the grind. Somehow, my memories of the grind had escaped me. Why in the world did I agree to do this again? There's no fun in it, in it at all for me. I even contemplated turning around and going back down the mountain, but I didn't want to look like a wimp, so I eventually made my way up to the top. A few years after that time, I found myself one more time, partway up the grind. And at that time, I was actually angry at myself. I was angry and thinking to myself, I don't get it. What am I doing here again? What's wrong with me? How easy it is for us to forget the things that we ought to remember. The biblical story we just read picks up only six weeks after the people of Israel miraculously walked away from slavery. They walked out with Egypt's silver and Egypt's gold jewelry and clothing. This mass exit took place after witnessing a series of ten plagues pounding Egypt, one after another after another, by God. After they left, they escaped the furious anger of Pharaoh and his army coming after them. They watched the army drown in the Red Sea after they themselves safely walked through it on dry land. (coughs) And they were now moving on from Elam, an area described as having springs of water. It would have been a temporary stopping ground where they would have hydrated themselves and restocked their water supply to carry with them as they prepared to move on into the wilderness. They were refreshed at Elam and content to not stay there but to move on to the land flowing with milk and honey. But it didn't take long before they started grumbling. In fact, this grumbling wasn't just from a few people in their midst, but described as the whole congregation of the people of Israel. They were expressing their discontentment about their situation, and they protested. And they directed their grumbling against Moses and Aaron, who were simply leading them by following God's direction. Now, I think I can relate to how Moses and Aaron would have felt. You see, my wife and I, we currently live in a world called Parents of Young Children, where discontentment and protest is often expressed to us in a highly unsophisticated manner that we call whining. Some of you guys are familiar with whining. Maybe parents, grandparents. This whining for us curiously takes place when our lovely seven-year-old son and four-year-old daughter are looking out of the second row windows of our minivan. And I see in my side view mirror that we've just driven by the golden arches of McDonald's. It's always at this time that I begin to hear over and over again, I'm hungry. Daddy, I'm hungry. I'm really, really hungry. Now, it doesn't matter if they are really hungry or not. It might be time for lunch, or we may have just had lunch a half an hour before. It doesn't matter. Regardless of reality, we will still hear, 
I'm hungry. What's wrapped up in that whining is a feeling of discontentment and a manipulative protest. Now I'm sure, now I'm sure that the grumbling that the Israelites were doing were, was essentially no different than the whining that my children do when we drive by a McDonald's. But what the Israelites said in their grumbling reveals that they had quickly forgotten where they had come from. They said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with, with hunger. You see, their hearts were still in Egypt because they had forgotten how horrible life was for them there. They suppressed part of their memories and said that at least in Egypt, they sat around meat pots and had stuffed themselves with wonderful bread to their heart's content. But this was a huge exaggeration about life, what life was like in Egypt. In fact, later, about a year later, as recorded in Numbers chapter 11, when they grumble about food again, their exaggerated memory gets larger and includes the wonderful cucumbers and melons and leeks and onion and garlic and fish that cost them nothing to eat that they missed in, in Egypt. Their romanticized memories did not include the toil, labor, and abuse for which they cried out to God every day for deliverance. And not only that, they were exaggerating about starving to death. They were just six weeks in on the wilderness journey. And we are told in chapter 12 that the Israelites took an abundance of livestock, both flocks and herds, with them when they left Egypt. After the last plague, all of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh, were desperate to have the Israelites leave their land quickly. So they let them take whatever they wanted. Whatever they asked for, they gave it to them, including livestock. And so the description given in the Bible is that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. So really, they wouldn't have died from starvation. They would have had flocks and herds of animals with them that they could have eaten. Now, a good question to ask here is, why would their, why would their hearts still be in Egypt? Was it the result of being in Egypt for 400 years, possibly? As a people bearing the identity, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would have known about the 400-year-old promise that God gave to Abraham to give them their own land. Weren't they eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of this promise? The reality of their situation, however, in Egypt was that they were a people group who were considered to be a threat to the Egyptians. So they were forced into slavery, suffered under ruthless taskmasters over them, and had their population controlled by the mass killing of their baby boys. But the dry heat of the sun, the rationing of water and food over weeks and weeks of trekking through the wilderness, even though they were making their way toward the land flowing with milk and honey, made them think fondly of the only life they knew, a life in which they knew what to expect. Pharaoh called the shots. They slaved away every day. They had food and water, and they could count on tomorrow being the same. They had lived this life day in and day out for their whole lives and for many generations. 
the Israelites were more familiar with and therefore more comfortable with the only life they knew. But God had heard their cries. Every day, day in and day out for generations, cries of cries from the people of Israel rose up to God, asking for them to be delivered from oppression. God saw their suffering. God heard their cries and he delivered them. But what did they know of God? Other than their identity as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I mean, other than hearing the stories of the promise given to their forefathers that they would have talked about over and over again, that they would one day become a nation inhabiting the land of Canaan, what of the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been handed down and lived out day in and day out by these lower-class, multi-generational slaves living in the powerful land of Egypt with all of its glory, culture, and religion. The only life they knew was the life of being an Egyptian. Yes, an Egyptian. Granted, it was being a Hebrew Egyptian slave, but nevertheless an Egyptian you see, think about it. We live in Canada, and Canada is a, is a country w- that is uh, from people, fr- people from all over the world come and they make their home in Canada. And generations and generations and generations live in Canada. For me and myself, I'm a second generation Korean Canadian. That means that I was born in Canada. My parents came here and I was born in Canada. And then I've got my children, and my children ha- will have children. How many generations will it take before my identity, my, my feelings of my Koreanness, will slowly dissipate? They have been there for 400 years, many, many generations. Canada is only 151 years old. So the only life they knew was less about their heritage and the stories of the promise they were to one day be filled, but more about the day-to-day grind they lived as Hebrew-Egyptian slaves. That was their identity. That was who they were. That was their life. Slaves of Pharaoh, slaves of Egypt. And so the Lord needed to teach them anew. The way they thought, the way they experienced life, God needed to take Egypt out of them and change their identity. They needed to discover who their God is and all of his glory. They needed to discover that they must trust God day in and day out because he would take care of them. And so the Lord turned the wilderness journey into a period of testing, instructing, and revealing They needed to discover that Yahweh is their God and that they are his people. The story goes on to tell us that because of the grumbling about food, God provided meat for them to eat by sending a massive population of quail to rest on their exact location and cover their whole camp for an evening so that they can catch as much as they can and eat as much as they want. The next morning, God started a daily provision of bread, what the people of Israel called manna, which meant, what is that? They had no idea what it was. They'd never seen anything like it before. Manna would rain down from heaven and would nourish them for the duration of their wilderness journey. The provision of the quail and manna were miracles. And these miraculous signs were to once again reveal to the people of Israel that it was God who brought them 
out of the land of Egypt, not Moses and Aaron, and that it was God who would be their provider. He was once again reinforcing what they should have already caught on to by now after the plagues, the exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. That is, he is their God and they are his people. In providing their daily bread, God gave them specific instructions on how they were to gather the manna. Every morning, each person was to go out and gather as much as he or she could eat. But they were also instructed to measure what they had gathered. Through these specific instructions, the Lord was reshaping them, uh, reshaping how they as the people of God were to live, trusting in God and God alone. First of all, he was teaching them that the value of trusting him, uh, the value of trusting him more than the value of trusting their own work. God still wanted them to work. That is evident in him telling them to gather the manna daily. But he also wanted to drill into them that their lives really depended on him, not the work of their own hands. And they learned this because each morning, whether they worked extra hard and gathered much or worked less and gathered little, when they measured what each person brought in, they saw that God provided each person an omer amount of manna. That is, a, an omer is a, is, a, is a measure of about two liters worth. So no matter how much they worked, when they all brought it in, they all got an omer. And yet, it was, an omer was enough for each person to eat as much as he or she could. So God's provision then depended on him and not their own doing. Secondly, God was also teaching them the value of not achieving security in their own efforts, but in God and God alone. He gave them specific instructions to not save any of the manna until the next day. If they did, it would breed worms and stink the very next day. Again, they were being taught that their security is in having Yahweh as their God. And and the security was not in their own ideas, their genius ideas of of saving food for later. This was a real day-to-day way of having them learn to be secure in God for, for their daily need. Now, though he did not want them to save the manna for their own means of security, he did specifically instruct them to save an omer of manna in a jar so that their future generations would know of of what God had done for them. Thirdly, God also tied the giving of manna with his provision of rest to them. Though he wanted them to work by gathering their daily bread, he also wanted them to rest regularly every seven days without every seventh day, without worrying about their future. He would provide enough for them even in their rest. He wanted this trust to be built into the regular rhythm of their lives. Now it's interesting to note that since the creation account in Genesis, where the Lord rested after creating everything in six days, this is actually the first instruction, the first time the Bible uh, talks about God giving instruction to keep a Sabbath. So this would have been all new for the Israelites to practice this Sabbath. And so the people of Israel were really beginning to learn to walk in the Lord's way after leaving a life of slavery under Pharaoh. After 400 years, they were thoroughly Hebrew-Egyptian slaves. And they needed to be trained to learn that the Lord is the only true God, not Pharaoh, and he is the God who will take care of them. 
They just needed to follow him and trust him. And they needed to learn that they were to be different, a different kind of people because of that. They were being given a new identity. In the end, there were two things that God wanted the Israelites to hang on to that would serve as an ongoing reminder of their new identity. One, the weekly Sabbath rest, built into the regular pattern of their lives. And two, the jar of manna that was set aside. This Sabbath rest was to be an important marker for the people of Israel. And the jar of manna was to be kept aside for future generations. God used the Sabbath rest and manna as a teaching tool to get the Egypt out of the Israelites and educate them on becoming God's people. These two things, Sabbath and manna, were there to continuously bring the Israelites back to remember. To remember. To remember that Yahweh is their God and that they are his people. And to remember that he brought them out of the land of Egypt and fed them in the wilderness. The Sabbath rest that is instituted into the regular rhythms of life helped the Israelites reorient their lives to regularly remember and trust that it is God who provides for them and not they themselves. And the manna, the bread from heaven that is set aside in the jar, has the express purpose of helping the future generations remember the mighty acts that God had done in the past, his acts of salvation and provision. We see in the Bible that it wasn't just the Sabbath and manna, but also creation, the flood, the plagues, the exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, and countless other acts of God, God's salvation and provision that the people of Israel learned to remember. All throughout Scripture, they remember and remember and recount and recount. They write songs and write down. They're telling stories of what God had done, remembering over and over and over. Remembering what God had done in the past to pull them through the present and to renew and strengthen their identity that the Lord is their God and they are his people. So if the Israelites were called to remember God's mighty acts of salvation in the Exodus and his provisions in the wilderness, what are we to draw from this? The salvation and provision stories of the Israelites in the book of Exodus foreshadow the grand narrative of salvation and provision in the work of the cross and Jesus. Like the Israelites, we also are called to remember that the Lord is our God and we are his people. But we are to remember that the Lord brought us salvation by freeing us from the slavery of sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 22 to 23 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every time we witness a new brother or sister get baptized, we remember and celebrate that we too were once enslaved to sin but are now free to live for righteousness. And we are also to remember the provision that God gave us in Jesus, who laid down his body to be broken for us and to raise him from the dead in order to, be free, in order to free us from death. 
John chapter 6, verse 47 to 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so every time we partake in communion, the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus, the bread of life, was given and broken so that we could have eternal life. Now, apart from baptism or communion, I want to ask you, are you a person who remembers the Lord throughout your day-to-day events, or do you tend to forget him? Or do you suppress parts of your memories like the Israelites did and forget where you've come from, what the Lord has freed you from? The reason the Lord wants us to be people who remember him is that remembering who God is and all that he has done is crucial to getting the Egypt out of us. In other words, getting our old ways of living out of us. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 37 to 41, God gives another special instruction. He instructs the people of Israel on the importance of remembering by saying, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now I'm going to ask us to just, uh, if you can close your eyes for a moment so that you can just be before God and have this moment before God. And I want to ask you, what is your own heart or your own eyes inclined to chase after in the everyday moments of your life? Is it relationships that are unpleasing to God? Perhaps there's sexual sin in your life, whether it be physical or in the mind, Perhaps it's a lust of the eyes. Or maybe you have a craving for more wealth because of discontentment in your heart. You want more power and more recognition from people. And so you chase after these things. Or perhaps you have been hurt and mistreated and your heart desires to get even, hold a grudge, or block people out. Wherever your heart is at right now, Just take a moment to remember our Lord Jesus. Remember Jesus who knew no sin, but was made to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And as you remember, if the Lord brings to mind things that you need to confess and repent of, 
take a moment right now with the Lord and make things right with him. I'm going to give us a few moments here. So if God is bringing things up in your own mind, things that you need to confess and repent, make it right with him. Father, we are prone to chasing after our, our cravings. Father, there are things in our lives that we consume ourselves with. And in doing so, Lord, we, we forget you. Father, some of us here in our midst, brothers and sisters, find themselves right now in dark places because they've been chasing after the wrong things. They've allowed the wrong things to enter into their lives. They've forgotten to remember you. Lord, help us to to remember all that Jesus has done for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for willing to Put yourself on the cross and take the full wrath of God against sin so that we might be no longer enslaved to sin but be found righteous. Father, I pray, Lord God, that we would be people who would always constantly remember the works that you've done in our lives, the works that we hear in Scripture, that we learn our salvation, Lord. What you did for us on the cross, Jesus. But Father, also to be able to remember the things that you've done personally in our own lives. Father, I'm sure if we can stop and just remember, if we just slow down enough, we would be able to see your fingerprints all over our lives acting and working on our behalf. Holy Spirit, moving within our hearts, Father, help us to remember that we might be able to be in that space and create space for your Holy Spirit to continue to do the work that you've promised of conforming us into the image of your Son, Jesus. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.